Demons can sometimes use objects as conduits to achieve their desired goal. Their desired goal? Our souls, John. It wants her soul. No, no, no. Demons can't just take souls, Mia. The soul needs to be offered to the demon before it can take it. Welcome to Now Playing's The Conjuring Retrospective Series. It scares us just thinking about it. When you hear it, you're gonna think we're insane. Hosted by Marjorie. I'm gonna get you now. I can hear you breathing. Arnie. Oh my god. It's standing right behind you. And Stuart. God brought us together for a reason. This is it. This review will contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. Listener discretion is advised. Okay, go ahead. Where do I start? From the first occurrence. Today we're discussing The Conjuring, starring Vera Farmiga, Patrick Wilson, Lily Taylor, Ron Livingston, Shanley Caswell, directed by James Wan. <laughs> this is Arnie, the clapping co-host of Now Playing. <laughs> Stuart in LA. And Marjorie. And surprise, bonus retrospective, happy Halloween, folks. Well, we heard your screams. I mean, let's face it, all throughout the fall, as soon as the Annabelle trailers really were hitting the movie theaters, we got a lot of requests. Are you guys doing it? Are you going to do Conjuring? I mean, they've been talking about Conjuring since last summer, and I saw it back then, wasn't really that big on it, wasn't really pushing for us to do it, thought we could wait for Conjuring 2, but hey... Annabelle's out in the meantime. It's not Conjuring 2, by the way. This is a spinoff, not a sequel that's coming out, but we are going to cover both. This week, we're covering The Conjuring. Next week, we'll cover Annabelle. Yes, I think we've just opened a bad door, because then next year, we'll cover The Conjuring 2. Then the year after that, The Conjuring 3, or Annabelle 2, maybe. What about that monkey with the symbols? They got a lot of shit in that occult (laughs) museum. I'm thinking, we're just going to actually review Conjuring movies from here on out. There'll be no other discussion of any other type of movie. Sorry, Marvel. But yes, The Conjuring, I knew a little bit about this because we covered Insidious last year, and James Wan creator of Saw, directed Conjuring in between Insidious and Insidious 2. We kind of referenced it when we were reviewing the Insidious films, but I hadn't gotten around to seeing it. I probably still wouldn't if it wasn't for you listeners. So yes, this is my first time watching this movie. I was very nervous about this because if you know me, I love horror movies. I love slasher films. I love crazy stuff. I'm terrified of ghosts. Poltergeist probably scarred me as a child. I love the movie. This trailer scared the crap out of me, and I was really nervous watching this movie. I had put it off for quite a long time. But that's nervous in the right way. I mean, the idea that the movie scared you, well, that's what it's made to do. I mean, you're hoping that it is going to scare the crap out of you when you see it. Yes. The whole part of the trailer where she's in the basement, and she lights the match, and the next to her scared the bejesus out of me. And many others. Yeah, I do feel like, well, we've discussed it with Insidious. So on those two shows, I have complimented James Wan as an excellent rigor of traps and tricks. I mean, he really does know how to do setups that get you. I think he'd have an awesome YouTube channel. But can he direct a horror movie? This remains in debate. And with Insidious... 
I gave him a pass on the first one, but really got annoyed when I felt like the ghost story wasn't coming together in the second one. I know he can make us jump. I know that the clapping game and all the little things he's going to work in here are going to be great, but will it cohere? That's my question. Coming back to Conjuring a year later. I mentioned this on Insidious. James Wan, he's made mostly horror films, started with Saw, but he always kind of felt trapped there. I now think of James Wan as the director of the next Fast and Furious film. I forget everything that came between. Yeah, he already kind of made this movie, and if you believe what he says, that he doesn't really want to do horror movies, the fact that in between Insidious 1 and 2, he would make this, I can only attribute to the fact that he's making it with different people. This is Warner Brothers money. I know he had a whole lot more to play with here than he ever did with Insidious. I think the budget was 20 times what he had with making that first film. So, yeah, I think that this was his opportunity to work horror on a big scale, and I also, if if you believe what he said in interview materials, thinks that he was interested in telling a true story, which, uh, I don't know. How do you guys feel about horror movies that claim to be based on true events? I think it's a scare tactic. I think it's there to generate buzz. And I really think in this day and age of constant internet connection, you can't pull it off anymore like you could in 1970s with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, where I grew up believing that really happened. <laughs> but it did, didn't it? Not really. Yeah, I agree. The urban myth has been debunked by the cyber myths, I guess. There's a new way to fool people. And so, yeah, it's really hard for me to swallow that there could be these kinds of events that are going to be passed off as true. I do think that's a ding on this movie. I do think framing a movie around Ed and Lorraine Warren is a controversial choice. They are not necessarily known as the most reputable people uh, in the field. I also just think that it makes it harder to be scary because, well, if it's based on true events, we can go and find out the facts before we watch the movie. And so we know who's going to live, who's going to die, what really happened. It takes a whole lot of the mystery away. Well, let's be honest, if it really happened, there'd be a BuzzFeed list about it. But this happened in the 70s. I think even BuzzFeed would get bored of that by now. I just think that the more scary true-to-life horror films are those like The Strangers of home invasions and killings and Ed Gein-type stuff versus true stories of ghosts. And I'll say, I did my research into this one. I went out and I bought the book. Oh, the memoir. Yes, not the novelization of this movie, but in fact, one of the daughters, the oldest one, Andrea Perone, wrote three books based what? on this. <laughs> House of Darkness, House of Light, the true story, volumes one through three. Was this a random house book? Self-published. Of course. Oh. Oh. I was planning on books and not showing it, especially since it was only $2.99 for the Kindle, until <laughs> I... <laughs> until you read, a, what, a chapter? How far did you get into it? I got two chapters into volume one. <laughs> I will say, first of all, the problem primarily with self-publishing is she didn't hire an independent editor. Mm. So all three volumes combined are 1,600 pages. Wow. 1,600 pages. I'm reading The Stand three times, and that is not much more than 1,600 pages. Yeah, that is 
did that much stuff happen? I, I'm trying to match it up with the movie that I saw. And I did she just talk about what she ate every day and, you know, <laughs> what boys she liked in math class? It is the singular worst written piece of literature that has ever been produced outside of a middle school class. Ouch. That's rough. It has improper punctuation. Semicolons in the middle of nowhere, sentence fragments scattered about, no clear, coherent train of thought, and worst of all, the bitch wrote it in third person. Andrea (laughs) didn't feel good that day. Do you have any idea how annoying that was to read? Stuart does, yes. I read more interviews with her and watched her YouTube videos. She also goes on at length on YouTube, like a 45-minute video. But I did get some insight into the Perron house before they moved to the haunted house. She talked about their life in New Jersey, why they moved, how her dog was killed by a neighbor. Wait, the dog was killed by a neighbor? Yeah. Huh? What? The demons didn't kill it? Because I'm sorry. I think that's a low blow when you kill the dog. No, the dog was killed by a neighbor. It was just a teenage bad boy who broke into their house while they were away, ransacked the house and killed the dog. And then Andrea tried to kill him in retaliation and was pulled off of him while trying to choke him to death. And so the Perones got the hell out of there and moved to the country because of the bad influences in the neighborhood. Not in the movie. Well, that's because the movie really is only secondarily interested in Andrea and Per. I actually don't think they care about Andrea at all. There's five daughters and who can keep track of them? <laughs> but the Perone family, they are here to be attacked. But I do feel like this is a star vehicle and a vindication piece for Ed and Lorraine Warren, who had been ghost hunting for decades. This was their claim to fame. And, you know, I'm no expert in this field, but I did read some behind-the-scenes opinions of work that they've done. And, you know, they were one of the people that helped proclaim that the Amityville house was haunted. They've got a lot of cases that are now going to be spun off into Conjuring sequels. We're going to be seeing a lot of their work. Stuart, did you backdoor us into being forced to do an Amityville retrospective now? I don't think so, because (laughs) they never were in the Amityville house when those occurrences happened. They came later to prove that it was haunted, but long after the family had moved away. Okay, so they aren't featured in Amityville. I thought... No, those they're not characters in any other movie featuring hauntings that they've explored. Oh, thank God. I thought for sure, because I know there's that new Amityville coming out in January. I was like, oh. No, it's already been pulled. They've moved that off the schedule. <laughs> I think that, that every time they open up the vault to take it out, the stench is too bad. <laughs> <laughs> Rotting meat, huh? Yes. Yeah, I know that the Perron family said this isn't based on Andrea's book or anything there. This movie is based on Lorraine and Ed Warren's files and documentation of the event. That said, given that the Perron family was present in the bonus features on the Blu-ray and did a lot of publicity and was all shiny, happy people about the movie when it came out, I have a feeling that they were perhaps on the payroll in some regard, consultant, something like that. I mean, you didn't see Jordan Belfort really going out, giving the thumbs up to Wolf of Wall Street when it came out. But the whole Perone family, plus Lorraine Warren, Ed is passed away and probably haunts us all. But Lorraine and the Perons, they were out there with big smiles about how accurate this movie is to the spirit of what happened, if not the actual events. 
Yeah, like I said, uh, there's a lot to be suspicious about, particularly when we talk about Annabelle, which is going to be the featured player in the next movie, and uh, a supporting character in this one. Wow, yeah. Why don't we get into the plot, and we can get into what's true and what's false. It's 1971, and the Perrin family is moving to their new Rhode Island home. The patriarch is Roger, a truck driver who often goes on runs, leaving his wife Carolyn at home with their five daughters, Andrea, Nancy, Christine, Cindy, and April. Couple sons, and they could do the sound of music. Soon after moving in, though, they discover a hidden cellar full of old items like a piano. Then they start to hear odd noises, hands clap where no one should be, and the daughters start to have visions of a grotesque woman in tattered white clothes. As things escalate, Carolyn goes to a local college campus where Ed and Lorraine Warren are speaking. The Warrens have achieved some fame for their investigations into the paranormal. Lorraine claims to be a psychic, and Ed is the only non-ordained demonologist recognized by the Catholic Church. Which we have to discuss because I didn't realize there were any demonologists recognized by the Catholic Church. <laughs> Can I change my career path? <laughs> yeah, Phoenix University. They have an online degree. It's great. Ed is reluctant to help the parents as Lorraine suffered a blow during their last case. But Lorraine insists. Leaving their own daughter Judy in the care of her grandmother, the Warrens move into the parents' home. There they discover that the land on which the house sits had been owned by a devil-worshipping witch named Bathsheba. Say that a few times at all. <laughs> Bathsheba killed herself in 1863 after cursing all who would try and take her land. In the hundred years since, Bathsheba has been possessing inhabitants on the land, taking possession of the mothers and killing the children. Upset at the Warrens' interference, Bathsheba tries to attack their daughter through the use of Annabelle, a doll that the Warrens confiscated on a previous case, but Ed prevents Judy from coming to harm. In the night, Bathsheba secretly possesses Carolyn, and though the Perone family is in a hotel, Carolyn takes daughters Christine and April back to the house to kill them. Roger and the Warrens rush there, and despite the church having not yet given their stamp of approval, they perform an exorcism saving the girls' lives and expelling the spirit from Carolyn's body. The Perone family now safe, the Warrens go to investigate a case in Long Island as credits roll. So the first thing that I have to say is not fact, is that this all happened in a short period of time, and that the Warrens saved their lives. The Perrons, during all their publicity, said they lived in this house for 10 years. Oh, wow. So that's why they had three books out of it. <laughs> <laughs> I will never know. <laughs> so you wasted $2.99? You can happily read it. You can share my Kindle account. But- more, the Warrens, they didn't go seeking their help, as I described in the plot summary. The Warrens showed up uninvited on their doorstep one day going, we hear you have a ghost? <laughs> yes, ka-ching, <laughs> publicity. Yeah, that, I think they're known for that. I mean, it's not a coincidence that the cases that they've investigated have ended up being major motion pictures in which, yes, they have served as consultants and gotten financial cuts out of. I don't know what their deal was with Conjuring, but I have to believe that, at the very least, having their names out there at the center of this movie the way that it is, it's going to promote their occult museum, which you can attend uh, in uh, Connecticut for $12. It's only $100 to have breakfast with Lorraine. I'm tempted. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing is, they kicked the Warrens out after the exorcism and said, get out, you're harming our family, and then proceeded <laughs> to live in the house for six more years. I love that. Get out! <laughs> Was that the voices of the spirits? No, it's us. Get out! <laughs> 
<laughs> Love it. But yeah, that is my sense is that they are real opportunists. And if they've ever helped anyone, I guess I won't be judgmental. Perhaps they have, but I cannot look at this piece as a true story. To me, I'm going to turn that all off. I'm going to just accept that this is a horror movie that has exploited that, much like many I've enjoyed before, like Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Psycho. We'll just go with it and see if it works just as a thrill ride. I have to agree. I'm not necessarily a disbeliever. I go back to Shakespeare. There's more in heaven and earth than is dreamt of in my philosophy. But that said, I'm a skeptic. And at the very least, I know from the research I've done that they took liberties, combined certain characters, nothing you see on screen, no matter is it the Wolf of Wall Street or is it this, is going to be 100% factual. You're going to have differing accounts from people who were there and changes made for economic storytelling. Well, the thing to remember is real life just isn't this interesting if it was we wouldn't need movies so they have to <laughs> enhance and embellish it i want a t-shirt of that <laughs> <laughs> but it's true it's another thing i want to bring up james wan is getting to make an r-rated movie you guys complain you don't like pg-13 horror insidious is pg-13 horror this should be even scarier because he is not going to be censored by that pg-13 audience but he kind of was the studio told him to make a PG-13 horror film. Oh, okay. Well, this was intended to be a PG-13 horror film. Those wonderful, fine folks at the MPAA said it was too scary for PG-13. And there was just what? no way this movie could be released under a PG-13 banner, no matter what they cut. Well, did they only watch the trailer? Because, yeah, the trailer, I thought I was watching something horrifically scary that has me scarred forever and have to sleep with the lights on. That you can't censor a movie R-rated for intense fear? Really? <laughs> yes, that is what they said. And so the studio, rather than, like, cut entire swaths or do massive refilming, just went, screw it, we're R-rated. But that was not the intent. This was not James Wan back in his Saw days where he was going to have the gore so bad that it was going to explode against the screen. In fact, he wanted to try to get away from that. I mean, we'll talk about it, but the big exorcism happens with a sheet over her head because James Wan felt it was scarier if it wasn't seen and more grotesque what you could imagine. He, but it was all done with Warner Brothers looking over his shoulder, making sure that they could get insidious money. All right. Speaking of James Wan and what he's done previously, what's his hangout with dolls? When we get going in here, he's starting not at the Paran house, but with Annabelle. And this is after a long series of being frightened by dolls. Saw, if you remember, that killer hid behind a televised doll. That was what was used to give all the messages to the people he tortured. And then he made a movie called Dead Silence. I watched it recently. It streams on Netflix. Not very good, but has some fun ventriloquist puppets that come to life because of a ghost woman and, and do some kills. I feel like he just needs to make this doll movie and forget the rest of it. Who isn't afraid of creepy-ass dolls? I think Poltergeist put that fear in me. I wasn't afraid of them until I saw that choking clown. Well, yeah, I mean, and let's face it, the older the doll is, the creepier it is. Let's talk about that, because when we start this movie, the first shot is uh, half of the doll's face. It's got a scar on its eye. It's made of wood. And it, yeah, the age on it gives it the impression that it is gone to seed. It just looks like a cute doll gone bad. If you go to the occult museum, or if you just go online to take a look at the real Annabelle... I have... I beg you to do that. It's a Raggedy Ann. 
Yes, it is a Raggedy Ann doll. Not scary, even slightly, not even kind of. Well, I do think that there's a right around Raggedy Ann and Andy, because in the documentary on the Blu-ray, where they toured the Warren's Occult Museum, they had to blur out the doll. I think that it's a trademark copyright, and whoever the owners of Raggedy Ann are do not want their lovable little ginger doll to be associated with the occult. So you couldn't make it that. And yeah, the makers just felt this was creepier. And they're right. It kind of reminds me of Glenn Glenda from Sea to Chucky. Oh. Yeah, no, there's no way you could have Raggedy Ann running around scaring people. That, that would kill the suspense of this whole opening here. I it mean, would become like the ginger dead man at that point. <laughs> yeah, there's no way. Yeah, I mean, Raggedy Ann, woof, you lose. Absolutely not. They had to go with something creepy here because really, there's nothing that this doll does. It goes crazy with the crayons. It bangs on some doors. It sure acts like it's going to do something horrible to some nurse students in 1968, but we don't even see the Warrens deal with it. No, it's just, it's over really quickly, and I thought the doll would actually be part of the story. Nope, not at all. I really wondered if this was all done with the idea of a franchise in mind. There was so little need for Annabelle to be in this movie at all. But yet, what's the movie we're leading up to? Annabelle. I think it had to be James Wan. I'm guessing that his doll fears forced them. He's like, oh, you got a creepy doll? We're putting that in. Top of the list. And keep in mind, there is no Annabelle. Well, the interesting thing that comes out of this story is that the nurses were told a seven-year-old girl died in their flat, and they gave it permission to possess the doll that was there, and it started walking around and, uh, you know, banging on the doors and what have you. But truthfully, it was, what, an inhuman demon that was looking to possess them. That was more interesting to me. I'm not really afraid of a doll. But yeah, the fact that the doll is the gateway to it getting to me, that's something to play with. Yeah, the fact that the doll was taken away without putting up a fight, though, is that going to be the end of the Annabelle movie? <laughs> Put you in a box, we're done. Yeah, one has to wonder what is in the film we're seeing. I'm guessing the nursing students aren't there. I'm guessing we're going to see the story about a seven-year-old girl, she's certainly in the trailers, who was killed by her mother, or I don't know. I definitely get the sense we're going to deal with more uh, evil moms. Yeah, the thing you bring up about the demon, though, I want to bring that up. What they're saying is that an inhuman spirit possessed the doll, but human spirits can't possess things. So only an inhuman spirit, something that's never been human, they call it something demonic, something supernatural, is what is in Annabelle. Right. So the implication here is that dead human spirits can't possess anything. Only demons can possess things. That's how the Warrens know that the spirit inside Annabelle is a demon and not a seven-year-old girl. We'll see if they stick by those rules or if you got it right next week. <laughs> I think we'll find out later this podcast that they don't stick by their own rules. But we'll talk about that when we get to Bathsheba. But here, why is this scene here? Is it just to introduce us to the Warrens and to set up the rules of possession? I do like that they state there are the three stages of possession. Infestation, oppression, and then possession. It's setting up basically what the three acts of the film are going to be. The Warrens are our star here, and I want to give a compliment right off the bat. They've gotten good stars to play the Warrens. I don't know if Ed and Lorraine are credible, but I do know that Vera and Patrick are. 
I really like these actors, particularly Vera Famiga. She's great on Bates Motel. She was great in Departed. She's great in most things, up in the air. I've liked her in almost everything she's done. And yeah, she really sells us on the idea that these two are in love. And I think that this is a love story. No, all kidding aside, despite all of the booga booga trickery here, this is a story about two people in love that are wondering if they're doing the right thing. I barely remember her from The Departed. I have watched every episode of Bates Motel, and I find her to be very engaging there. And here, yeah, she's not bringing that same kind of performance. So she's an actress with range. I think she does very well. Patrick Wilson... Well, I only know him as Insidious, where I thought he was... Will Arnett. In fact, I call him almost Will Arnett. Funny thing, that I don't think I've seen Will Arnett in much. But here, I didn't really think of him as Will Arnett the way I did with Insidious. I think sideburns and his persona here go a long way towards making me lose them into the characters. I think he learned how to act a little better, too. But keep in mind, this is before Insidious 2, where he was horrible. Then what happened? (laughs) Bad script. Yeah, that's true. I'm not going to blame him, but I like Ed and Lorraine as they appear on screen here. I like their character arc, even though I find it frustrating. We never know exactly what happened at the Maurice exorcism that makes her so gun-shy to attend another paranormal event. He doesn't want her to get involved. Yes, that bothered me the whole time. I was expecting some big reveal at the end, and something happens during this exorcism in the second basement that... Something great would happen and we'd see why Lorraine has been so troubled. Nothing. Didn't really mention it again. I guess she just overcame her fear. We saw footage. There was a Frenchman that was crying blood and speaking Latin and had crucifixes upside down burning onto his torso. And he gets up at one point and, and yells at her. That makes her go into a room for eight days and not eat? Yeah, I don't get it. And it wasn't revealed. So lazy plot device. Conjuring 2? I mean, I do think that they're franchise building. Juan did that with Saw as well. He did not tie up every loose end in Saw. He left it on a cliffhanger and had a whole bunch of doors opened. And I think that's what they want from any horror movie. Nobody wants to make one movie anymore. They all want to go to Marvel school and have a franchise and a universe built around them. And I think these are the doors opened. And if Conjuring was a hit, and it was a huge hit then they'd be able to have these storylines fleshed out later. But that said, it's really frustrating in the nth degree that it's not answered here because it's such a big thing. Yeah, she doesn't eat or come out of a room for eight days, and it's not her who's really gun-shy. It's her husband that he, he says every time she goes to one of these exorcisms or faces a spirit... It takes a bit out of her. He doesn't want her to go to the parents' house. It's Lorraine who's like, no, we have to go. We have to help them. They really make him to be the protective husband and her to be the selfless helper. She's the Tangina. She wants to help because she really identifies with the Perron mother, that it's a mother-to-mother thing, which is funny to me because they ignore their daughter Judy through most of this movie. We barely see Judy. Judy has to, like, buy them lockets and be like, remember what I look like? Here, take a picture of me. 
throughout this movie because she barely is in here and is only in here, I'm convinced, because they can then bring that Annabelle doll back to terrorize her in the near climax here. That If you ask why Annabelle is here, it's so that they can do that at the end. And that's the payoff for all this setup. It does introduce the Warrens, and it also sets up what they're going to do to the Warrens at the climax. That said, while the Warrens have top billing in the credits and... They're the start of this. They aren't in large swaths of this movie. They are at the top, I think, because this is being told from their stories. But we spend a lot of time with the parent family after this. They're moving into their new house. I have to say, I'd tell my realtor if I was looking at this, no thanks. I'm not really interested in a haunted property. As this has all the hallmarks of it. The old fixtures, the old appliances, the peeling paint, the musty hardwood floors. I know that they built this just for this movie, but to me, this could have been the house again right out of Insidious, just given a worse paint job. Yeah, it's a creepy New England home. It does... In fact, most of this setup really reminds me of Amityville. I don't know the true Amityville story. True in quotes. I didn't read that book. I have seen the movie with Margot Kidder. And the similarities are suspicious, I would even say. It almost sounds like... Well, if you had heard the Perron family, you might convince other families if they wanted to make money on this kind of thing, they need to have these kinds of elements. Get this kind of house, have a bad smell appear, find a mysterious room in the basement you didn't know was there when you bought it, the dog. Yeah, a lot of things here. I don't know who's copying who, but it is surprising how much they seem to be emulating the Amityville here with the Perron family. And that's a lot of the criticisms I read about that House of Darkness, House of Light, is that she seemed to be taking all the things out of Amityville. The key is in the real-life chronology, this came first, so who's copying who? Obviously, a lot of people are coming in with your viewpoint, Stuart, of Amityville's been in the pop culture consciousness more. The trailer said this was the story too horrific to tell until now as if this was the only story the warrens had been involved with that wasn't made into a movie i've not seen amityville so for me i'm able to see it i guess in a pseudo chronological order i'm seeing the conjuring first i have seen poltergeist and insidious so i see just now trope upon trope of ghost movie especially one aimed at a teenage audience like all of these pg-13 films have been Yes. These events may have happened in the early 70s, but the accounts of them, the published books, the memoirs, all came after a slew of 70s movies that it takes imagery from. So you just really have to wonder how influenced were these authors by The Exorcist, by Omen, by Amityville, the movie. I mean, some of the family members from Amityville talk about how now remember things that they didn't speak of after having seen that movie. I do feel like what we're seeing here really is the influence of 70s horror cinema, which I love. I'm glad it's here. And James Wan does, too. He uses a lot of zoom shots for the exterior. He moves the camera a lot quite frequently, actually. He, the, the font, even, of The Conjuring. <laughs> he is trying to channel that 70s vibe. So whether you want to believe this or not, he's trying to tap back into an era where we thought that exorcisms and, yeah, demonic possession was a common occurrence that could happen to your house. And I do like his camera work here. There's a couple of shots where 
early on during the haunting, one of the girls, and I'll just say straight up, I cannot keep their names straight. I'm not even going to try. They're all interchangeable. They should have just taken it down to two or three girls in the family and taken that liberty. There was no need for five. But one of them is being spooked by a ghost and looks under her bed and she's upside down and the camera's upside down and then she goes right side up and the camera does this really cool flip maneuver that's not even entirely on an axis it like moves to the left as it flips it was really smooth and a well done camera move i he does that flip a couple of times here and it really made the film visually interesting that's Christine, by the way, played by Joey King. I'm going to predict she's the one that's going to break out. I have little mnemonic devices that help me remember who's who. She's the short-haired one. And I do think that out of all of them, they kept going to her because she gives great fear face. She's the one that sees something in the dark that no one else can. Is she also the sleepwalker? No, that's Cindy. Wait, who didn't that who you just said was the one under the bed? Christine. Oh, dear God. I couldn't keep these girls straight either. And for a while, we thought one of them was a boy. And then towards the end, they had them all grouped together. Like, oh, they are all girls. Look at that. And there's five of them. What? Christine's got short hair. She's the one that looks like the boy. I Again, I think that's your breakaway star. Nancy has glasses. Christine and Nancy are playing the clap clap game when they find that basement uh, that's been boarded up. Can I just say that's the most dangerous game to play in the world, especially in a new house, or later on the mother is playing it with April when the two of them are home alone on the second story of this house, where <laughs> the goal is you walk around blindfolded following a clap. I'm like, forget go. She's going to fall down the stairs and this girl's going <laughs> to be like trapped with her dead mother in a house. I had the same reaction. She does hit the banister. I'm like, you see? You're like, that's all it takes. <laughs> Word to the wise. Don't walk around unknown places blindfolded. But yeah, this is the worst version of a hide-and-go-seek ever. But I remembered this from the trailer, and it is spooky when they're following the claps and they hear claps from where no one can be. And later on when the mother's doing it, out of the closet, you just see these ghostly white hands. It doesn't scare me, but it succeeds in giving me that kind of icky feeling. This whole clap game is the whole reason why the trailer scaled the crap out of me, because I thought it was going to be this ghost story and this is what was going on. You thought the whole movie would be clapping? Not clapping. I didn't think it was a jazz number. But <laughs> I thought it would be like mischievous ghosts doing that and freaking you out. For some reason, demons don't bother me. Go figure. <laughs> Go figure indeed. This is the best thing of The Conjuring has going for it. I mean, honest to God, this is the reason why it was a blockbuster, right? And they keep going back to it. Yeah, the girls are asleep. Clap, clap. Someone's playing. She's playing it with the little one and is drawn to that curio cabinet and we know the little girl is in the other room and yet we hear the clapping right inside all this stuff is great james wan makes great traps i think that this is maybe his most exceptional one it is the reason the reason why it's all over the trailers it's the best thing he's ever done yeah as far as traps go it isn't doesn't hold a candle to anything in saw like the jaws or the petroleum jelly covered walls or the chained up in a dirty bathroom but yeah, they're going through this house. They discover this unknown cellar where the furnace is. 
How could nobody have known about this cellar? How is this furnace? Like, the father finds the basement is like, oh, there's a furnace. I'll try to make it work. Had nobody been working on this house's appliances all this time? It makes no sense to me why and how this was boarded up. You don't need to board up a cellar to tell me it's spooky. I mean, I grew up in a house with an unfinished basement that my mother was afraid to go in and thus made me afraid to go in it. So that would have been enough. I take it as this. They didn't buy this house from previous owners. We don't know what happened to the immediate owners before this. Didn't they say it was a bank foreclosure? Yeah. The bank sold them this house. I take it to mean that the owners knew there was evil here and boarded it up to protect whoever would have the house next. Protect them from the furnace and all sense of heat. <laughs> well, it does get cold as soon as they tear that down and try to turn on the furnace, ironically enough. And I don't think that act releases the ghosts, though. Usually in this kind of a movie, there's some act that releases the spirit, right? The genie is in the bottle until you do something. Here, I just took it as coincidence that they found the basement and things, that that the spirit was going to haunt them no matter what. Well, the dog wasn't going in, so he knew something bad was in there. But I take it as exactly as that. If they hadn't done this, if they hadn't been playing the clap-clap game and knocked that board down, it's stupid Nancy, her fault. She's the one that ran into the wall. I think that this is what's instigating it. I think Bathsheba was trapped down there and now is free. It's a common horror device when you're talking about spirit. Something happens. Yeah, it makes it more fun. I mean, you want active characters. You don't want them to be passively victims having no say in in their own demise. I mean, it's more fun to think that they brought it on to themselves unwittingly, but that makes it more engaging. And I think the reason why they target the mother comes in these early scenes, too. She thanks her husband for agreeing to do this. She is the reason that they came here. And thus, because of that, we know this Bathsheba does not want people on her land. That's why she targets Carolyn. Except I I agree with that. And in the book, it is said that the father didn't want to move for financial reasons. They just didn't have the money. And it was the mother who pushed everything. But that said, Bathsheba always inhabited the mother. That's what said. Everybody who lived there, Bathsheba inhabited the mother and then killed the child. So no matter whose idea it was, it seems like Bathsheba's M.O. wasn't going to change. Yeah, once we get into Bathsheba, it's a different story here. I'm going to say right off the bat, I like this opening setup. I liked it back then. I like it now. I like this family. The camera work has set the right mood. And yeah, I even when it's predictable. Oh, Sadie's barking, and now I don't hear Sadie anymore. Hmm, I wonder where the dog is. I mean, even when it's obvious what's coming next... It's a fun mood. It's a mood I'd like to return to. As someone that likes that 70s horror cinema, that wants to see another exorcist, yeah, let's do this. I'll give it this. Juan conveys a sense of creepiness. It's aided by the score, which could have just been lifted from Insidious. But when you find the dog dead, Sadie, who I briefly thought was one of the children, and they're like, where's Sadie? Well, five kids, of course one's missing, but it's the dog, and... She's out in the daylight calling for Sadie, and the way it's shot, the way she's hollering, all of that, really made me nervous. And to convey a sense of tension in bright daylight is unusual in horror. They always put horror at night because people are afraid of the dark. To give me that kind of willy during a daytime shot, I got to give them credit for that. 
Now, you said the dog died before they even got there, so this is artistic license. Yeah, and I'm sorry, killing the dog is low. They were wanting this to be the first omen that they should get out of here. The next omen's got to be bruises, right? I mean, the sex couldn't have been that good. (laughs) I don't know. It was Peter. Come on. Yeah, Peter from Office Space here, Ron Livingston. I don't care what wig he wears. I don't care how many jobs he does. He will always be Peter from Office Space. And the bruises, they try to explain it away because... If Marjorie woke up with those bruises, my first thought when I saw it in this movie is, isn't that a sign of leukemia? Maybe I jumped to bad conclusions, but if Marjorie started waking up with those, I'd have her at the doctor immediately. But apparently, Carolyn has a history of iron deficiency, so it's not unusual for her to start getting bruises. Right. We see her later taking prescription pills, so we know she went to the doctor at some point, and they tried to find a rational explanation. But, of course, every scene she appears, she shows a little bit of skin, something slips off over her shoulder. We see a new bruise each time. It is a buildup. It just doesn't stop. So we eventually learn that there are rules here, and that Yeah, the first stuff that we've been talking about is the infestation stage. But now, this is oppression. It's picked its target, and it's Caroline. 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 (laughs) And this is the best part of the movie for me, is the oppression stage, because this is where we get the most scares. That said, on a scale of 1 to 10, I would say at most, I peaked around a 4. As far as fright goes with these, I think they did a good job. At no point was I laughing like with Insidious and it's Darth Maul demon and it's woman, man, transvestite in the black funeral outfit. But the ghosts here, they look all like extras from the evil dead, really. I mean, they're all deadites jumping around and hiding on top of armoires and all of that. But it was so telegraphed. And maybe I've just seen too much horror, but I'm like, I know the rule of three. I'm like, okay, here's a long shot. Wait for it. Wait for it. Oh, there's where I was supposed to jump. But did you know the rule of three is about uh, defacing the Trinity? This was kind of a neat twist. The reason why it knocks three times, the reason why the clock stops at at the three o'clock hour is because the ghost hates, uh, I guess christianity actually i thought the three o'clock hour was that's because when one of the characters killed themselves 307 a murder occurred the knocking was the trinity no Bathsheba hung herself at 307 yeah. she was declared dead at 307 how are they going to be able to claim to down to the minute in 1863 where they consult the sundial give me a break see i expected to jump more the beginning had you jumping with the clapping game the hide and clap and a few of the scares when the girl was under the bed poltergeist i can never think of anybody peeking under the bed like that without poltergeist i was really expecting some good jumps out of the jack in the box the music box that the little girl was playing with but that never really panned out other than a fuzzy picture in the swirly mirror swirly mirror by the way which put swirls on characters cheeks right like billy the puppet from saw he likes spirals as well as puppets Yeah, I do feel like it's designed in much the same way. And yeah, I felt like, yet again, he's building another trap a little less successfully. Rory is a little imaginary friend to the youngest girl. And so if you look into the mirror and the music stops, you're supposed to see him. They keep teasing that. But yeah, there's one jump late in the movie in which Rory's mother goes, boo, nah. Not so great. But Poltergeist, we already know Juan loves Poltergeist. He even admits to it here. It's a visual joke. The dad wakes up and the TV's got the static on. He knows that we know. And that's something else that 
scares the crap out of me still to this day because of Poltergeist. I cannot watch snow on TV. And because of Poltergeist and because they seem to be playing by the Poltergeist rules here, was I the only one expecting this movie to progress to a child being kidnapped and taken to another realm when whatever her name was is looking under the bed and things? She's acting with so much fear. I expected hands to come out from under the bed the way they came out from the closet, grab her and pull her under. I mean, you need something. All we end up getting, the only physical manifestation of this is something starts tugging these girls by their ankles and they slide down the bed a couple of feet. But see, it's based on a true story. You can't take that kind of dramatic license. <laughs> this is what Spielberg knew what to do. Yes, we take these reported incidents, you know, and he did it with Close Encounters. He took all the history of what people said happened when they met UFOs, and in Poltergeist, he took all the histories of what people said when they had a haunting, and then that was the jumping-off point to crafting a story. And here, this is the real problem, because they have to stick to the accounts of what happened, and even then, they're embellishing, like Sadie, but yeah, we're just left with a series of shocks and no real through line. There's no real upping of the stakes. These people could leave the house, but we're told once the Warrens get contacted and are brought into this, that it's a black shadowy figure that sticks to them like gum. A, not a scary metaphor. No. <laughs> Unless it's on your shoe, which sometimes is very frightening, especially if you're walking into your house. Yeah, it's scary if it's on your carpet. But then, B, this is the same thing they did with Insidious, right? They did leave mm. the house in Insidious and it stuck to them. How is this not like Insidious 1.5? It's made it a different company. I do believe that's, that, yeah, he essentially agreed to remake his own film with a higher budget and presumably a higher take-home pay. That's probably why James Wan made this movie. And add a little bit more poltergeist to it. Sure. Because they all stayed in the room together like in Poltergeist. They're all sleeping on the first floor, staying out of the upstairs. The ghost hunters come and embed themselves in the house. Like they did with Insidious and like with Insidious or Poltergeist. There are your ghost hunters and then two bumbling comedic relief assistants. Yep. I fully expected when the cop got up to go to the bathroom or go get another cup of coffee, whatever he was doing, that there'd be a steak crawling across the counter and then some maggots on his chicken leg and then he'd peel his own face off. He does get a, a chunk bitten out of him late into the movie, but yeah, he never gets what we think he deserves. He's the skeptic here, only here because I think he's taking some of the pictures, but he's also security that he, he'll be able to, to help should they need brute force. Beyond that, he's law enforcement, right? I kind of thought he was there to make sure nothing illegal was occurring. That was my reading into it. But if you've got a woman with bruises, and then you've got strangers moving into a house and fear of a child being killed, it might help to have a law enforcement officer there to give a deposition. I hadn't put that together, but yeah, that would be a reason to have a law enforcement person if you were doing an unorthodox test like they're doing here. I kind of love these tests, though. I love the analog quality of it, that they have those old label makers on on the mics, you know, like there's just something about the era that makes this fun because it is technology from another time that is antiquated. It's fun to see how they would handle it. I mean, these days with the gadgetry we have, uh, you know, it would just be so slick and hip. But here are UV lights and cameras that go off when the temperature changes. I think this is fun. I also think it helps to set horror movies in the past. 
modern technology has made it harder for horror movies to necessarily work because of cell phones and all that. If you're not going to have the trope, oh, my cell phone battery is dead or I have no signal. You've got the camera phones. You've got all of this. Sure, it's led to a brand of found footage films that I don't like. But by and large, I just think things are a little bit creepier when you can be cut off from people, when you won't be getting text messages, and when you don't have modern digital technology around you at all times. I think the last movie of modern era, and there might have been two because they might have come out around the same time, to just totally disregard cell phones were the remake of Texas Chainsaw Massacre with Jessica Biel. A period piece as well. Yes, period piece. And then House of a Thousand Corpses. So what you're saying is cell phones have ruined the world. Yes, they have in many ways. <laughs> I believe it. But yes, it is nice that no one is making a call. That when they have to make an emergency call, it's a rotary phone. I'm, I'm just liking this setup. But you're saying this is your favorite part when the Warrens move in. This is where I'm starting to smell something, and it's not the ghost. No, no, it's... Up until the Warrens move in is my favorite part. The uh, After they've moved in, when the ghosts really start to oppress. And during some of this early stuff with the investigation, yeah, I'm enjoying it. But yeah, Act 3 is where my interest in this film really starts to wane. It, I, at this point, just to give a barometer on my review, I was completely apathetic towards this movie. It was diverting, but I was neither scared nor entirely into it. I was having trouble keeping the characters straight because there were too many of them, and I didn't feel anything was something I hadn't seen before, but it was well done. So I was right on that borderline of whatever I did, recommend or not, it was weak, but it's up to the third act to really make that choice. It's a little before the third act for me. It's once they start investigating the history of the house, and I'm expected to believe that the descendant of a Salem witch trial witch is responsible for all of this. That really, they were right to burn all those women back in the day. Not all of them, but can you tell me definitively that not one woman burned was a witch? Of course not. That's the whole point, right? <laughs> I mean, maybe they were a little bit too broad with their executions, but... It's fun to think that there were some witches in Salem. I mean, Lords of Salem and Bewitched both went there. Yeah, I find it obnoxious, actually, that this woman basically, back in 1863, sacrificed her seven-day-old baby, got up on a tree, and was like, I love Satan, and hangs herself, <laughs> and then everything that happens, everything, every drowning, every suicide, every missing child is her fault. Did she cause the stock market crash, too? I mean, like, are we going to pin everything on this bitch? She did make Malaysian Flight 370 disappear. <laughs> there we go. Bathsheba. Now we know. On the one hand, I kind of like that she is the cause of everything. That you have a culprit there. And why does she get to stick around while most of us die and just go off into the ether? Satan! Good reason as any, right? The movie's lacking in a few pentacles, but beyond that... I totally lost interest once I found out it was a demon, I'll be honest. Is it a demon? Let's talk about that, though, because first of all, she is the cause of everything, but there's a ton of spirits around, so it's like everybody who she causes the death of is still hanging out. Right? And evil. and yeah. yeah, and angry. Exactly. This poor woman lost her child, Rory, and is now, like, 
trying to get you in the basement? It's all very confusing. I don't understand. But I was okay with it when it was a ghost story. And then they turned to demons. Did they turn to demons is what I'm asking. Ghosts don't possess people. But she was not a demon. She was a human being. But she possessed somebody. Right. So that's where I brought all that up early in the podcast is do they break their own rules here? I think they just made crap up. I'm not sure I ever understand the rules. I think if we try to apply what we know to be true and real about demons and ghosts, it cannot apply to this movie. No, I'm finding the explanations borderline obnoxious. And yeah, I don't care whether it's a demon or whatever. But the idea that we're going to blame the Salem witch trials for everything is it's mega obnoxious to me. I, I just find that stupid. I mean, keep in mind, this is not just silly fiction. This is a true story. And they've taken great pains to make this as real as they possibly can. It was working in the beginning, but the more that they're explaining, oh my god, hide this in the closet. But it's not a true story. And here in the third act is where it veers wildly far, far, far away from reality. If they're going to embellish, embellish in ways that improve the fucking film. You can't stand there on the crutch of, but it's true, so it can't be fun. Because this whole thing at the end with Carolyn getting possessed and them going to a hotel and her kidnapping the kids and coming back to kill them with scissors, none of it happened. (laughs) Thank God. I didn't know the true story of this, but yeah, this is where the movie really... I mean, just like nosedives. I couldn't even believe that we go here to basically let's just rip off the exorcist. Yeah. For the listeners out there, what happened was the Warrens, again, uninvited into the house, but offering to cleanse the spirit and bringing in tons of people with them, decided to perform an exorcism to cleanse the house. During this apparently, according to everybody involved, although I could come up with psychological explanations for all of it, Carolyn had been inhabited by a spirit, and then they had to exercise that and get it out of her body. But at no point did she start grabbing scissors and going after daughters and kidnapping people, and people thought she was real. None of that. So, yeah, a lot of artistic license, and not necessarily to the greatest point. Yeah, you said exorcist. Yeah, I'm definitely thinking that only not as good. And if you recall, I didn't recommend The Exorcist. No, here's the problem. Honest to God. You know, in the 40 years since they did French Connection, they've made some incredible improvements to car chases. Uh, They've made improvements to dance sequences. They've made improvements to most genres. We've found enhancements in new novel ways of filming something. There is nothing new about an exorcism. We all know this drill, right? You vomit up something, you say something in Latin, you got a croaky voice and say horrible language, you float around, and then some priest comes up and throws holy water on you, and you go, and you're fine. I mean, it's the same thing. They have not progressed one iota from the Friedkin movie. Oh, but... This is totally different because the church didn't bless this occurring. That's completely different than all the others where it was a priest. Okay, you're right. I don't see a man with a collar. 
but it's just boring that this is the way that they had to go. And I thought they were pigeonholed into this because they couldn't kill any of the family members. They couldn't take the story into a radical direction. They had to stay true. So, okay, they extrapolated uh, this idea that she might have gotten possessed for one night and turned it into, I've kidnapped the kids and I'm going to murder them in the basement. Well, much like a zombie movie, she was infected because Bathsheba vomited blood in her mouth. Yeah, that came out of nowhere, or Prince of Darkness. Yeah, that was gross. And it, right then, I'm like, yep, I know where this is going. I was thinking about last year's Evil Dead with that, though, too. The vomiting right in the mouth and everything. Really, it was gross, but not nearly as gross as it could have been. And as I say about all this movie, it's... Well, wait a second, though. I'm sorry, but I don't care who you are or what's vomiting in your mouth. It's gross and worthy of, like, some rage punching in your face. We knew they were going to go here, I mean, because we saw the three steps, infestation, oppression, we had to get to possession, we knew the oppressed person was going to be the possessed, but couldn't they have done something surprising? I mean, all of this is just so cheesy and rote. I mean, even the idea that this is going to help the war in marriage, because, you know, he didn't want her to come here, he's worried that she's going to be at another exorcism, but she doesn't want to stay at home writing books and counting their money. No, she wants to be crawling underneath the kitchen table and putting her hand on a woman screaming and saying, remember that trip to the beach? <laughs> that was so trite. I'm, I wanted more the power of Christ compels you unless it's the power of love. Yeah, no, I agree. It is, yeah, 10 slices of cheese atop this. And it really kills any goodwill that was built by this movie for me. I got to say that was true a year ago when I saw it in theaters. I just, I couldn't believe that something, an ending this bad could be attached to the fun of where we had started. And isn't it lame that they never even get to her? She like jumps into the walls and is in the cellar and she's <laughs> in this little rat hole and they just basically reach in. I wanted something more climactic. I wanted them to do something. I mean, are you going to tell me? I think Bathsheba killed seven generations. I can't remember if that's real life or in the movie, but seven generations of people moved in and killed their kids there. All because of Bathsheba. Are you telling me they all didn't love their kids as much as Carolyn? I needed something else. I wanted them to do more of the tie her down stuff. They did some of that and the vomiting on the sheet of blood and all of that. It wasn't enough. Maybe because I'm here for a horror movie. I wanted to, if you're going to do an exorcism, give me Demon Reagan. You know, take off that sheet. Show me some good effects that show me a mother possessed. Here, I'm thinking they just barely touched her, cornered her, and because of her own power, she's able to vomit it out. I wanted more Warren files here. I, at very least, didn't want to go back to Exorcist 2. While all this is happening, a bunch of birds are breaking through windows, and, you know, the little girl is screaming in the car. I'm like, really? We got to go back to the locust? Kakumo. The only good thing that happened at all during the end of this film was, as you mentioned, the attack of Annabelle on the Warren's daughter, Judy. That was the one thing that had me wonder, I know nothing about the Warrens before watching this movie. Did their daughter die? Could they have blamed Annabelle for the actual death? And would it be weighing heavily upon them the guilt that they went to help other people's children at the cost of their own. If this wasn't based on a true story, that would make great drama. But here, it's just kind of boring. Yeah. But how did the demon get there? Was she following the Warrens, the kids? How? 
the locket. Remember the wife when she initially found that whole secret passageway behind the closet? Yes. She lost her locket. It was like dangling somewhere. And the little girl said, this will always connect you to me. And because she said that, it became yes. a spiritual doorway. <laughs> what the hell? She found it at a yard sale. I don't even know how she got it. She's she's yeah, a little kid. She's got no money, but whatever. I buy it. You know, I saw the locket swaying. I'm like, I don't care how it gets there. This was unexpected. And bringing Annabelle back, will there be a payoff for this? Um, I don't know. Not really. Yeah, it was kind of fun that they did it. But just to see a woman in a rocking chair throw it at this little girl... Uh, they didn't have enough true facts to build the case that something really horrific is possible with Annabelle. So far, she likes red crayons. She bangs on doors when you're trying to sleep. She's annoying, no doubt, <laughs> but uh, not much worse than a garbage pail kid, really. She's just a bad roommate. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Leaving grocery lists all around. <laughs> Miss me? Eh, I've had worse. <laughs> but have you? Marjorie Stewart, do you recommend The Conjuring? Marjorie. I've had a lot of internal thought about this because, like I said earlier, the trailer scaled the shit out of me. I was expecting a good poltergeist level movie that makes me uncomfortable to watch it. I mean, I'm getting pretty up there in years and poltergeist still kind of creeps me out. The first one, not so much the second and definitely not the third one. Let's just be clear on that. <laughs> but this turned into a demon possession movie and... Yeah, the hide-and-clap game, scary like it was in the trailer. Not as scary when the whole thing plays out and all the extra scenes are in there. You know, the very short jump cuts in the trailer scared the crap out of me. But I guess demons just don't do it for me, which is, they don't scare me. I don't find exorcisms scary. I don't find any joy in this. I found it a chore to get through the third act in this movie. I just kind of think, come on, make it get over. I'm done. Just... Something's got to happen other than I throw some holy water at you and the wife talks about memories and we're done. By contrast, Insidious at least had the, oh my god, I can't believe that, oh my god, the demon's Darth Maul. What are you doing? He's sewing? What's going on? This didn't have any of those fun elements. So I've been on the fence about recommending it and I just don't think I can as a ghost story or a good horror movie. It had some really wonderful parts, but I don't think you have to see it. Unless you really just love exorcisms. I, I'm just going to have to go with a not recommend. And it's not saying it's a bad movie. It didn't do it for me. I didn't find it scary. And it got to be hard at the end just because I wanted it to be over. Oh, but there are drag queens here. Joseph Bashara, the man who does the score here, really is committed to appearing on screen as a uh, transgender monster. Last time he was lipstick face demon, he's playing Bathsheba here. Good for him. He did a good job. She looks like a crazy homeless person on the subway, but hey. Yeah, I didn't recognize it as a man playing a woman, that's for sure. No. Of course, I didn't look that hard, and you really couldn't see much, because she wasn't on the screen much, and I thought that the character was intentionally in black and white most of the time. You can't see the Adam's apple when it's in a noose. There you go. I need that on a shirt. Stuart. You hit on something real central there, Marjorie. This is not a good ghost story. These are conjuring tricks. And James Wan has done these tricks before. Now, admittedly, some of his best tricks are in this movie. 
early on. I love some of the setups. I love the clap and hide game. I think that he can stage little moments well. What he has never really been able to do is establish a credible evil. I don't care what it is. Ghost of witches, demonic from hell, Barbie doll gone bad, whatever you want to do, explain it to me and why it wants to hurt the victims. But I, yeah, you can't be worried about victims when you don't understand the threat. And that's just really a problem I see with Insidious and certainly with Conjuring is that you just can't be afraid of what that's, what's at the center of this movie. You can be afraid of little moments, but no, there's just, there's not a good villain here. And I'm hoping that when we get to the sequels that, yeah, they can prove me wrong, that Annabelle is going to be a lot more frightening than what they've alluded to. But I'm just not convinced. It's a mild not recommend. I think the beginning is good. I actually literally think you can watch the first 40 minutes and turn it off and enjoy it better than if you watch the rest of this movie, which really just shits on all the goodwill. Um, So, mild not recommend. And like I said, I was on the fence. I'm still ever so slightly on that fence. It's The problem is, it's not a very good movie, but it's fine. It's not really scary, but it's got some clever camera work. It's got some clever scares. I like the hands out of the closet. I really did enjoy, like, from the 15 to the 45 minute mark and everything else. It wasn't horrible. It was just not anything inventive or new that I wanted to see. (laughs) They're going to put this on the poster. It's not horrible, says Arnie. (laughs) For people who enjoy this kind of ghost story, they'll probably have a really good time. So while I didn't like it, I'm tempted to just give it a mild recommend because I think people would. But there's better ones out there. Go back. Watch Poltergeist. Hell, watch Exorcist, which I didn't recommend. You know, there's some classics out there to get into. So yeah, I guess I'll go weak, not recommend. But there's parts in here that really could be enjoyed. It just, the whole is less than the sum of the parts, I guess. I think we're all saying the same thing. I really think that our three of us, or maybe people our age, perhaps our horror palette is just more refined than this, and we expect a story. And also, we're old. Yeah, no, I do think it's a division between YouTube generation and us. They don't mind watching a bunch of shocks. That's all it needs to be. But will we be saying the same thing next week? I hope not. James Wan is gone. I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing, but Annabelle is back. The the Warrens will not be back. The Perrins are not going to be there. So a lot of what we liked and didn't like is gone. Really, all we got is a creepy-looking doll. And I'll give you, she looks creepy, but I don't know if she can carry a film. Well, we will find out next week. In the meantime, if you enjoyed the shows we're doing, Children of the Corn on Tuesdays, plus these bonus shows we're doing, we are able to squeeze these in and really readjust our personal lives, our work lives, our calendars overall, so that we can bring you extra shows thanks to the support of donors and donations and the money that goes to this show and to buy our tickets to Annabelle and to pay for our servers and our bandwidth. And right now we have a donation drive going on where there are 13 to 16 films, depending on your level of donation, all of which are less scary than... The Conjuring, that includes seven Leprechaun films. None of them are as scary as The Conjuring. 
<laughs> but my, some may be considered more entertaining. You'll have to find out for yourself. Leprechaun, man, I didn't think I'd ever see a one of them. But uh, yeah, doing them all for my donors. And then, of course, we've already reviewed the original Peter Jackson Lord of the Ring trilogy for silver level donors. We're going to be doing the Hobbit trilogy later on for platinum level donors who donate $30 or more. You also get the three animated Lord of the Rings films from the 70s and early 80s. Those have all been reviewed. We're doing a Leprechaun a week through Halloween, and then we're doing the Hobbit films leading up to the Battle of the Five Armies. But even if you don't want those shows, if you enjoy now playing, we really could use your supports. If you think about, as I often say, you'd pay a $1.29 for a five-minute song on iTunes. And we have talked for well over an hour here. So if you just donated a $1.29 for all the shows we do for free every year, that would be a $72 donation, which would take you well beyond the platinum level and really help us out. So you can find all the details by clicking the banner at the top of nowplayingpodcast.com. And I thank you from the heart in advance for your support. But we will be back on Tuesday with the last Children of the Corn review. Yay! (laughs) Then the following Friday, we'll be back with Annabelle. So Marjorie Stewart, thank you for joining me. You bet. And until next week, it's over. You survived. You don't come out the other side of something like this weaker. What is there left to be scared of? Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Pretty far out, isn't it? Yeah, it's groovy. You can hear more movie reviews at our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. In our archive section, you can find reviews of the Insidious films, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Halloween, Saw, and hundreds more. Look what she made me do. While at nowplayingpodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss this review with other listeners. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. The links to our social media pages can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. Sometimes when you get haunted, it's like stepping on gum. You take it with you. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. We got all the money tied up in this place and had a lot of repairs on top of that. You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store, where you can buy t-shirts, totes, boxers, coffee mugs, teddy bears, and much more. I like your dog. Now Playing's The Conjuring Retrospective Series is edited by Arnie. He's always sad, but I think something bad happened to him. Now Playing Credit Narration by Brock. It talked to me. It said that it wants my family dead. Now Playing is not affiliated with New Line Cinema, The Saffron Company, Evergreen Media Group, or Warner Brothers Pictures. The Conjuring films are the intellectual property of their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. We should talk to someone. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts, and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. The devil is the father of lies. Demons are his manipulators.
Now playing is a Venganza Media production. Copyright 2014. All rights reserved. And no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. We have to get out of here. You did good. No, you did. What about that monkey with the symbols? They got a lot of shit in that occult museum. I'm thinking we're just going to actually review Conjuring movies from here on out. There'll be no other discussion of any other type of movie. Sorry, Marvel. This is going to be like Friday the 13th, the series on the big screen, right? Curious goods, all those different cursed items. I know how much you'd love that. Only if there were kissing cousins. Can someone dig up Robbie? Is she on the back shelf somewhere? Remember her? (laughs) Actually, I think it was Robe. Oh, whatever. (laughs) Her version of One Night in Bangkok rocks. I have her CD. Of course you do. That doesn't surprise anyone that knows you. Mm. We covered Insidious, or as we like to call it, Insidious. And I think what they're saying is only demons possess things, but spirits can possess people and things. No, no. Demons can possess... Oh, Marjorie almost spit up water on this one. (laughs) I'm going to be so confused now. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not being helped by this explanation. (laughs) Okay, let me just start this over. Um, Later on, the mother is playing it with Cindy. Nope. Christine. (laughs) Nope, April. April. Fuck!